We've been going through the book of Luke, and if you're a guest with us, we journey exegetically through books of the Bible, and, and so we've made it to Luke chapter 7, and, and that's where we're going to pick back up in to, again today. So we invite you to go to the website to catch up, um, and come back next week where we'll pick up next week where we end today. Um, so, so far, to catch you up, Jesus has just preached a message about two totally different kingdoms with two totally different kings with two totally different sets of moralities and then two totally different outcomes from which one you follow. And so at this point, everybody's applauding. Yes! Everybody on the hillside is looking. They're all taking notes. They're all excited. And so everybody is believing. Except for this one strange fellow. The last person you would think is going to be doubting. And it's going to be John the Baptist. So let's pray together, and then we'll dive into the text. Lord Jesus, so thanks for um, just a chance to gather. The gift of the gathering is, is indeed a gift. God, I pray we will never take lightly the local body and the local church and the gift that it is. The chance to gather with one another, to shake hands, to, to, to see our little ones on the screen um, Crying out about a firm foundation that's in Christ and loving one another and, and high fives and, and balloon arches reminiscing a daddy-daughter dance that happened just a, a couple of days ago. And, and we sing together and we're going to commune together and baptism today and, and, and we get to dive into the text and let it bathe over us. All of it, Lord, a grace. Never let us forget the grace of the gathered body. So if you would... Today, God, as we contemplate this text and think about it, doubters who walked in today who are unbelieving doubters, God, would you awaken their heart to salvation, that they would see that you are worth faith. Um, and, and so, Lord, would you do the miracle of awakening faith in unbelievers today? And then, Lord, for believers, that we would be strengthened and encouraged even when we doubt you remain steadfast and Lord, you love us. It's in your gracious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Be seated. Be seated. So glad that you're here with us today. Again, Luke chapter 7, uh, verses 18. Lord willing, we'll make it all the way through 35. <clears throat> so here's the thing about faith and, and encountering doubt. John the Baptist is going to be the one who, who finds himself doubting. Of all people, again, John the Baptist would be the last one that you would think would be one that is full of doubt. And the reason maybe you're like me and you would think, John the Baptist, that's a strange one to be doubting, is because John the Baptist was one that was with Jesus when Jesus was baptized. And so John is baptizing people. Jesus busts on the scene to be baptized. And you'll remember, if, if, you, if you do, John screams out when he sees Jesus, Hey, that's the Lamb of God. That's the one who takes away the sins of the world. So it might seem a little bit strange that the one who screams out, That's the one, is now the one that's going to be doubting. And so I say all that to say this. If you are in this room... And you find yourself as one who sometimes doubts, or you struggle with doubt, or you, you, doubt creeps its head in. Hey, today is going to be a good text. It's going to be a very, very good text. Let's talk about doubt just for a second. Uh, Descartes and Buddha, it's kind of an odd pair to put together. 
but Descartes and Buddha, they had a lot to say about doubt, and, and they actually said that doubt was a good thing. Um, as a matter of fact, that was the way that you found yourself through self-actualization and enlightenment. Ultimately, it's control. If I, if I doubt and I work my way through my doubt, then I control myself and I bring myself to self-discovery and freedom and enlightenment and all those things. So they would say that doubt was a good thing, right? Hence, that leads a lot of people today to deconstruct their faith. Have you heard of this? Maybe there's some people here in this room who are like, yeah, I'm on a journey of deconstruction. Well, here's what I would graciously and lovingly say to you. If that's you, man, you are headed down a terribly dangerous path. Never once in Scripture are we commanded to enter into doubt. However, in Scripture, we're always commanded to take control of our doubt and replace it with the contrary of faith. Be a person of great faith. And so it's a dangerous path to go down. Again, if, if you're one of these people... Man, I want to say this to you. Deconstruction of your faith, the search to find the true Jesus that you want to find, usually ends in damaging yourself and damaging others. I say that to you. It's just it's a dangerous place to go down. Here's what you need to do. Dive into the scriptures and just embrace the Jesus of the text because there is no other Jesus. Dive into the word. Find him, and you'll find everything you need for both life and godliness, and ultimately, I would say, happiness. So, with that said, the first temptation in the Bible, as you'll remember, is to doubt. So, doubt all the way back to the garden. You'll remember Satan came up to Adam and Eve and said, Now, now what did God say about that tree? Doubt. Just want you to doubt. And then they answered and said, hey, we can eat of these, but we can't eat of this. And then Satan replaces that doubt and then with a further lie. No, you surely won't die if you take of the tree. So it goes all the way back to the garden. So if you wrestle with it, don't think, well, I'm the anomaly. I'm the only one. I'm the only person who thinks these thoughts. It goes all the way back. He's always used doubt to, to kind of to hamstring people, and he's not going to stop because it works. It works. So there's a lot to be thought about in doubt, whether it be secular, Descartes, Buddha, or all the way back to the Bible um, in, in Genesis. So let's look at this. Great message has just been preached. It was incredible. Everybody's hanging on every word, and then we've got John's doubt. Let's look at the text, and maybe today, if God's gracious, we'll see how Jesus responds to our doubt. So here we go. Verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another. And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the one who's to come or shall we look for another? There it is. John's doubt. The greatest human ever to live on planet earth. And I know right now you're going to say, no, 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 that was Jesus. Hang with me. Because Jesus at the end of this text is going to say, John is the greatest person ever born of a woman on earth. The greatest person, human, ever to live, purely human, Jesus obviously the greatest, but the greatest pure human ever to live found themselves in doubt. 
Jesus has done miracle after miracle after miracle. The, the lame are walking. The blind have received their sight. All of this. And John's sitting here going, I don't know. That's Greek for confusion. I don't know. I don't know about this. And he found himself there. So again, three things to say about that. Number one, that seems odd in light of who John was. I think we can all agree on that. But number two, there is a reality to this. Now, now why would John find himself in doubt? I'm just going to offer just a couple of reasons I think this. Number one, I think he finds himself in doubt because, well, he's in prison. He's found himself in prison, and if you ever find yourself in isolation for a long period of time, in darkness, with nobody around, usually what trails right behind that is depression and despair. That's why God says, listen, community is good for you. Well, he found himself in prison. If you know the Bible stories, um, and the reason he finds himself in prison is because he goes to Herod and says, Herod, hey, you are with married now to your sister-in-law. That doesn't jive with the Lord, and then... Um, Herod goes, we ain't going to have this. And then Herodias, his wife, says, hey, stick him in prison. And ultimately, she's going to do what to him? Say it out loud. You can say it in church. Cuts his head off. Yeah. So this is where it's headed, right? But he finds himself in prison at this time. Now, why would him finding himself in prison be a reason that he begins to doubt Jesus? Because Jesus prophesied. Remember what he said? He said, I have come to set the prisoners free. And so John's going, hold on a second. If you're the one, I'm a prisoner. Why am I not set free? So I think that's reason number one. And then reason number two is because Jesus came on the scene. And in that moment, John began to prophesy. And he said, hey, here's the prophesy about, prophecy about the ones who's to come. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, certainly he had done a lot of deeds where John had heard of. He's done a lot of things that look a lot like the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit can accomplish lame, walking, deaf, hearing, sightseeing, all this kind of stuff. But, but fire, he's supposed to come in and he's supposed to start wiping out the Romans. But guess who's still in control of the government? The Romans. And so John's going, are you the one? I'm still in prison. And you haven't baptized the world with fire yet. Why have you not come and just like a sword just chopped everybody's head off? So he begins to enter into doubt. So the oddity of that, the reality of that, now the hope of that. The hope of this is this for us. If John the Baptist doubted, then we can rest assured, church, that the measure of Christian maturity is not... Whether doubt comes to war against your heart. The measure of Christian maturity is whether your heart goes to war when doubt comes. You just give in or do you war against it? So if you find yourself going, hey, there are some times I doubt. Number one, you're in good company. I mean, John the Baptist, right? Number two, what do you do with that? You just give in, or do you go to war against it? And going to war against it, no matter how long the battle, no matter how hard the battle, no matter how loud the battle, no matter how much you have to fight that fight, if you find yourself in the fight, praise the Lord. That's the Spirit working in you to war for Christ's glory, even when you doubt. So there's the hope in that. 
So just a couple of notes on doubt, and then we'll keep going. Eight things that occur when we allow ourselves to wallow in doubt. They'll pop up on the screen. Take a picture of this if you want to. Um, We'll blow through it. As always, we have one person in our church um, who... I'll, I'll shamelessly plug, um, Jamie Glasgow has deemed himself the one who shall post all things like this on the uh, website, uh, so if you catch these on Facebook a little bit later, he'll have those up for you, but let's kind of look at through these things. Eight things that occur when we allow ourselves to just kind of wallow in doubt. Number one, you'll navel gaze at your inadequacies, inadequacies if you're not careful. If you give in to doubt over and over, you will navel gaze at your inadequacies and that will birth fear in you. And fear is always contrary to what the Lord has for you when we allow doubt to just swallow us. Number two, when we allow doubt to swallow us, we reject Christ's adequacy. In other words, we stop looking at him as sovereign and we go, because I'm doubting, I'm going to turn from you. And we, we try to turn in and control things ourselves and do things the way we want to do them, how we want to do them. That's the ultimate outcome of doubt. And so we doubt his adequacy. Number three, we smother the joy that comes from faith. When we allow doubt to swallow us, we are like a person who's sitting at a campfire. Now it is about to be campfire season like nobody's business, all right? And I just saw a a TikTok reel the other night about getting some crescent rolls and sticking them on the end of a a wooden dowel, and then you put blueberries in it and whipped cream, and anybody else see that one? Johnny, you saw it. Uh, Awesome. Yeah, we'll make them together, and we're not sharing with the rest of you, so there you go, all right? But it's about to be campfire season, and there's two things you can do with the glowing embers, The glowing embers that are all around, you can sit there and you can roast something on them and you can enjoy them or you can smother those suckers out and walk away. Doubt does the same thing. If we're not careful, we'll allow doubt to come in and smother the very real tangible joy that Christ has for us when we walk in faith. It'll smother it out. Number four. We'll miss out on receiving from Christ's hand when we let doubt come in. James says it this way, the one who doubts, why would you expect anything from the Lord being the one who doubts and is swayed, double-minded in all ways? You'll remember James chapter 1. Number five, if we swallow ourselves in doubt, we'll respond in self-imposed actions that are worshipless. When we allow doubt to swallow us, what we'll do is we'll try to engage in more works to get rid of our doubts, and we'll begin doing and heaping on ourselves a lot of works in an attempt to find joy that only faith can bring. Well, if I just pray more, give more, go to church more, go on the trip more, do the thing, do the whatever, and you'll find yourself like a Pharisee who tries to do all the things to figure out how to bring yourself joy because you're doubting, and in doing so, you'll find just as much joy as the Pharisees who were called by Christ white-washed tombs, brood of vipers, right? Don't let doubt take you there when you can rest in faith. Number six, got to keep going. 
When we're swallowed by doubt, we're driven about aimlessly by various winds. We're tossed around by anything new and cool that comes along that adds a little bit of you in it because we feel good about us doing a little bit of something rather than just resting in the fact that Jesus did it all. Right? We get blown around. Number seven, we'll dangerously suggest what God can and cannot do when doubt comes. Y'all remember this. We talked about it a couple of months ago. At the beginning of Luke, Zechariah began to doubt. Remember? Hey, your wife's going to have a child. Zechariah began to doubt. The Lord comes in, the Spirit comes in, the angel comes in and says, Hey, because of your doubt, you can no longer talk for the next six months. And he hits the mute button on Zechariah. Do you all remember that? All because of doubt. It all comes in. And we suggest, well, God, you can do this, you can't do this. And then God ultimately puffs his chest up and says, I'll show you what I'm going to do. I will do what I'm going to do. You zip it, shut up, boom, mute button. And then number eight, when we let doubt swallow us, we act as though God has not been faithful to his own glory over and over and over and over. God has always been faithful through past generations, through the present generation, and all future generations. And when we let doubt swallow us, we forget that all of history is unraveling his story exactly how he wants it to play out. Don't do that. Don't let it. It may come. But war, church. War against it. Don't let it take you down in all of those different things. Let's keep going. John's doubt. Jesus' answer. Here we go. How does Jesus respond? So in that hour, in the hour of doubt, he heals many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestows sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you've just seen and what you've just heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Isn't that incredible? What does Jesus not do? He doesn't go and say, John, I cannot believe you're doubting. Zap, boom, put him on blast. He doesn't blast him at all. There is no condemnation. He doesn't go, John, of all people, why are you not believing? How does he respond? Not in condemnation, but in grace. He comes to him and goes, listen, I'm not going to blast you here, but here's what I'll do. I will, and all you people who grew up with hymns, you're going to love this one. I will prove myself or and or. Again and again. Tis so sweet. And he responds in grace in this moment and proves himself, does all the things, all the things that fulfill the prophecy. As a matter of fact, specifically the things that fulfill the prophecy. And in this moment, he gives this little phrase at the end, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And I don't do this to y'all a lot, but that word there, it is a good Greek word. Go study it if you're into that kind of thing. It's where we get our, the word offended, it's where we get our word scandalized from. He says, don't be scandalized. Don't be tripped up. Blessed is the one who's not tripped up. In other words, what he's saying is something along these lines. You will be blessed 
if you have faith and are not disappointed in the way that I choose to work. Now that's a big one. In other words, he looks at John and the disciples of John and says, listen, you're coming to with me with doubt. I'm not going to put condemnation on you, but I'm going to replace that with grace. Now, you'll be blessed if you choose to be okay with letting me work the way that I choose to work. And church, that's what usually gets us, isn't it? We have faith so long as God does things the way that we want him to do things. We let doubt swallow the moment he does something in a way that we don't approve of. That's where he gets us, right? Like, there's a couple of people going, yeah. Am I the only one that... Surely I'm not the only one that gets caught in that. That's where we find ourselves. You ever been tripped up by disappointment in the way that he chose to work? Maybe a couple of illustrations. Again, not trying to be your Holy Spirit. But just lobbing some things out there. Maybe you, God, why did you let things go down politically like that? I don't like that. God, why did you let my marriage crumble like that? Or morph in a way that I didn't approve of. God, why didn't you bring healing to that disease? God, why didn't you allow that good person to live? God, where were you when I needed you to come through the most? Can you identify with those? Where were you, God? That's the moment we get tripped up. And we go, God, I wouldn't have done it that way. And God kindly looks back and says, good thing you're not God. Because you don't know what I know. And if you knew what I knew, you would do things the same way that I choose to do them. That's what it means to be sovereign. That's where rest comes. That's where contentment comes. And that is the scandal that in this room right now is dividing people who are sitting right next to each other. Because some of you are going, I fully embrace God's sovereignty. Yes, he can do what he wants to do. And then somebody else sitting next goes, "Mm, but I wouldn't do it that way. It's the great dividing line. And this passage is calling us to take our doubt and replace it with faith and let him be God. And the reason that we go here in disappointment is because at best, it's because we forget. Or at worst, it's because we totally ignore that spiritual salvation is Christ's main interest. Not doing our bidding in the here's and there's and what we want. Spiritual salvation is his primary goal. But we want him to help us on public's aisle number six choose whether we have black beans or refried beans. And why are the black beans out of stock when I wanted refried beans? God, how dare you let the black beans go? 
We want things the way we want them. And you're like, Troy, that's a silly illustration. And it is. But maybe it's a silly illustration and we use silly illustrations because if we get more pointed, it'll grab our hearts and go, whoa, I don't want to go there. Why am I still single? Why did that person die? Why did I lose my job? Why don't I make more money? Why am I still battling depression? Oh, Troy, talk about the beans again. (laughs) That was way better. We forget. God's chief goal and primary interest is in bringing people who were wretched sinners into sainthood. And he accomplishes that by his means. The question are, are we okay with what he allows to occur to accomplish those means? He's God. He's God. Don't be disappointed and fall into doubt through disappointment. Now, let's keep going. So John's doubt, Jesus' answer, and then Jesus' affirmation. This is even better. And when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John, who had just heard that John the Baptist is doubting. So he has a chance now to put John on blast when John and his disciples are not around, but he doesn't. Here's what he does. Concerning John, what did you go out to see in the wilderness? A reed shaken by the wind? He says, John wasn't that. And he affirms John's strength in the midst of John's doubt. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? So he affirms John's posture that's countercultural. He says, listen, this guy, this guy's living for the glory of the Father. Even even his clothes were different. Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are kings and in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. So he affirms his prophetic position. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is of he whom it's written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face. Did you catch that? He says, the guy that is doubting is the messenger. He's the messenger. And I sent him before your face who will prepare your way before you. And I tell you, and here's the verse that I said just a minute ago. And I tell you, among those born of women... None is greater than John. So then he affirms his greatness. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven, in the kingdom of God, is greater than he. Phenomenal passage. Could have put him on blast. Does nothing but affirm him. And in this moment, he gives that last little phrase of, I tell you, which I think begins to speak to us as we get close to wrapping it up. Among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who's least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. What does he mean by that? I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know. I don't have a clue. Um, And and so as a staff, we kind of batted this around the room and chewed through this this past week. And this question, I think, is a great summary of at least one thing that Jesus is saying here. Tied in context, I think the best question I could ask is this. 
will you, will you, will you be okay if you enter into eternity and find out that Jeffrey Dahmer is there? Will you be okay with that? Will you be okay if grace is enough through repentance to save Jeffrey Dahmer for all of eternity? It's fun to talk about John the Baptist and go, yeah, yeah, he had a moment where he tripped up, had a little bit of doubt, but surely John the Baptist is going to be there, right? I mean, he did a lot of good things. He was pretty great on earth, except for that one little hiccup. And then Jesus affirms John, and then he flips the script, and he says, hey, but will you also be okay if the least, the one who needs grace the most, also by Christ's scandalous work, enters into eternity through repentance and forgiveness? We'd be okay with that. Because frankly, I don't know you, but I know me. And when I look in the mirror, I can identify way more with Jeffrey Dahmer than I can John the Baptist. If I don't get in by grace, brother, I ain't getting in. I don't have a shot. And there's probably a lot of you in here right now who are like, yeah, me too. And so Jesus goes, hey, hey, for the one who feels the least, like you don't measure up. If you're leaning in on my sufficient work, doing battle with your doubt in the kingdom, my grace will prove itself to be great for you. Hey, it's okay to say, Amen. 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 And so, in this moment, he wraps it up. And he takes it further to illustrations of response. The only thing great about us is the grace that we receive. And the people hear all this. Verse 29. And when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too... Isn't it interesting he throws tax collectors in there when he had just talked about the least? Who do they hate the most? The Romans. Who do they hate second? The tax collectors. Who do we hate the most? Tax collectors. All right. <laughs> and let's see, Dan in here. All right, no, no. All right, so. <laughs> we hate tax collectors, right? He throws them in there. When all the people heard this, the tax collectors too, what did they do? They declared God just having been baptized with the baptism of John. Some are overjoyed by the scandal of substitutionary atonement. Some in this room are elated with that right now. And some of you can't get over the thought of Jeffrey Dahmer making it in via grace through faith. That's the great dividing line. It's a scandal. But the Pharisees, the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves Having not been baptized by him, some are scandalized and they go right back to efforts and works to do more, to please more, in hopes that one day they will replace their doubt with, I've finally done enough. And if you're in this room going, one day I'm going to finally do enough, 
I got one question for you. How long you been doing that? And how's it going for you? That was two questions. Give it up. By grace, through faith, is your only hope. That's it. It's the scandalous substitutionary work of Christ. And so then, let's wrap up the text. To what shall I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We play the flute for you, and you didn't dance. (laughs) They're not satisfied with the way that Christ defines joy. We played a dirge, and you did not weep. They're not satisfied by the way that Christ defines lament. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. You're not satisfied with the fact that John was an aesthetic. An aesthetic? An ascetic. He was a monk. You're not satisfied that he lived a fundamentalistic life. And you say he's got a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, he's a glutton and a drunkard. So you're not satisfied with Jesus' normal life. In other words, you're just not satisfied. You'll only be satisfied by grace through faith in Christ. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet, wisdom is justified by all her children. So at the end of all these things, Jesus says, Hey, with me, the end will prove to be ever satisfying and utterly satisfying if you just trust in me via faith. A lesson on doubt. A list of things that occur when we walk by faith as we wrap it up and the band comes up. This, I found myself at the end of this week's study in, in a psychological medical journal. Sounds exciting, doesn't it? <laughs> right? There may be a couple of people in here like that. That really is. That really is exciting. Right. I was looking at doubt and I was looking at faith and what happens with faith and, and what, what, how does this practically play out? We definitely know the dangers of doubt. But if the contrast is the joy of faith, then what happens when we replace our doubt by walking in faith? Famous psychological medical journal, and we'll end with this, and I quote, in the popular teachings the University of Alabama, Duke, in in the world of academia, religion commonly underlies florid mental illnesses such as psychosis. But in reality, though, religiosity has been shown to protect against psychosis. And patients who used religions to cope had better insight and were more compliant with medication. In the majority of studies, religious involvement is correlated with well-being, happiness, and life satisfaction, hope and optimism, purpose and meaning in life, higher self-esteem, better adaptation to bereavement, greater social support and less loneliness, lower rates of depression and faster recovery from depression, lower rates of suicide and fewer positive attitudes towards suicide, less anxiety. Uh, let Let me read that three times. Less anxiety, less anxiety, less anxiety. 
less psychosis and fewer psychotic tendencies, lower rates of alcohol and drug abuse, less delinquency and criminal activity, greater marital stability and satisfaction. This is the conclusion of the largest literature review and is endorsed by a former president of the Royal College of Psychiatrists. He laments the lack of attention given to this strong evidence for anything other than religion and spirituality, governments and health providers would be doing their utmost to promote it. How powerful. So here's the deal. Boil it down, Troy. You can keep drinking the world's Kool-Aid that your works and you figuring out will bring you joy and happiness. Or, you can follow where Christ says, hey, drink of my blood. Trust in me. Eat of my body. And wellsprings of living joy will erupt out of you. Let's pray together. So Lord, as we think on this text now, we respond in prayer, in repentance, and I pray, belief. God, in this room that through this text that you have begun unshackling people and freeing them by faith in Christ's sovereignty from their own bondage of control. God, they'll trust in you. And most importantly, that we'll walk in faith knowing that through faith alone, the Father is glorified and pleased. And we won't buy Freudian lies. That religion and faith is dumb. But we'll take what you said. That faith in Christ will be a stumbling block to those wise in this world. But will be the very cornerstone to life forevermore for those who are believing.